Thanks, everybody, for joining us for another Down the Hatch podcast. This podcast is uh, pretty special, I think, because we're actually talking about sensation on purpose for the first time in like three years. Uh, So we're kind of guilty of ignoring it ourselves, which is basically going to be the theme of this podcast, which is... uh, Swallowing requires all the feels, but we kind of don't really give it any attention in that direction. Um, Why are we talking about this? Well, over a year ago, I decided I wanted to focus on sensation more. And in many invited talks that I had, I decided to survey the attendees about just a few basic questions about sensation. And over several meetings from Utah to Alabama, even to New York City, I asked had about 200 SLPs answer a few questions. And so the first question was, is sensory testing important for the clinical swallowing evaluation? And 100% of the SLP said yes. But uh, 65% of them report actually testing sensation in the clinical swallowing evaluation. 41 uh, 41% consider testing sensation throughout therapy. 21% report having any training on sensory testing, 16% have even heard of psychophysics, and only 6% could accurately identify which cranial nerves send sensory input to the brain from the oral, pharyngeal, and laryngeal regions. So we already know that sensation and movement are important, but in my opinion, SLPs ignoring the sensory component is sort of like going to an eye doctor and they measure the exact range of movement of your eyes from left to right, up and down, but they never measure visual acuity. They're like, great range of motion of the eyeballs and you still can't see Jack. Uh, so today we have a special guest, Dr. Rachel Mulherin, and uh, few scientists have intentionally incor- incorporated sensation into their research. Rachel and I have this in common. Um, But what we also have in common is that we have had the same dissertation advisor. Now, that might sound like nothing, but actually, uh, Dr. Christy Ludlow was my dissertation advisor, and I graduated in 2005, and I was her very first. And Rachel, you were one of her last uh, uh, dissertation advisees, and this was when she had moved to James Madison University. So we have some um, Ludlow-White similarities there. Rachel, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. I'm Rachel Mulherin, and um, I'm currently an assistant professor at Case Western University um, in Cleveland, Ohio, also a speech pathologist. And um, as Ianessa mentioned, one of my primary interests, um, both from a research and clinical standpoint, is um, sensation and how we uh, can practically evaluate it, as well as how we can potentially harness it in treatment. Thank you for that introduction. I also wanted to point out another connection among the three of us, which is at one point in our lives, we all were employees of physical medicine and rehab in at Johns Hopkins University, right? Uh, well hospital for Alicia and University School of Medicine for Rachel and I. But we all we've all walked through uh, that corridor at some point. And we were one of the few uh, swallowing people uh, sort of in that vicinity, mostly OTPT. All right. So, uh, wow, guys, I just want you to know that this is the first time we've ever recorded. Leash, are you are you muted? No, I'm okay. Because <laughs> you're even laughing, and I can't even tell. I'm like, is she there? But this is the first time I, we've ever recorded. 
this is the first time we've ever recorded in the morning um and we just we just don't even recognize each other it's we feel how do you guys feel since it's a sensation talk <laughs> i feel like if you've been listening to this we're like three minutes in but if you're somebody that listens to this podcast it's already three minutes in you're probably already like something's different about these guys like what's going on like oh yeah we're like all half awake right now it's a monday morning at that so we're actively drinking our caffeinated beverages and trying to talk about sensation but don't worry we're going to get into it soon enough so let me start out um in today's podcast, we hope to address a few introductory concepts for sensation. Obviously, we can't get through everything, but the first thing that I want to talk about is what is sensation? I think there's a lot of assumptions that sensation is just, you know, feeling things, but it's probably more than just that. Who wants to start? Sure. Well, um, I can jump in and um, I will say that when I first started thinking about sensation, um, kind of when I was a budding clinician, I didn't really have an awareness for the difference between sensation and perception. So that's kind of a place that I like to start. So sensation um, is more, a better way to describe it is to talk about the uh, transduction, whether it's uh, somatosensation or taste, some kind of incoming signal that's being carried uh, via receptors and cranial nerves up to the brain. And then perception is how we actually experience those sensory inputs. So um, I think for me now, I when I say sensation, I try to be very careful to separate that from perception. But at the end of the day, the sensory experience is a combination and an incredible overlap of those two pieces. So just to be clear, uh, sensation is, are the actual signals that carry some kind of stimulus from the periphery to the central nervous system. However, how you perceive that is where perception comes in. And this is probably a good time to introduce a concept called psychophysics because I said in the survey, I said 16% of those SLPs who were surveyed had ever heard of psychophysics. Basically, that's just examining the relationship between the physical stimuli that we were talking about, like you touch somebody's arm and that information goes to their central nervous system versus the perceptions that they produce, not just did they feel it, but how would they categorize it? How intense was it? What do you do with that information is another higher level situation. And this matters a lot. And I hope we have time to get there when we talk about aspiration, the idea that you can ask a patient, did you feel that? And they'll say yes, but they didn't cough. And you're like, where's so feeling something does not necessarily mean that a behavior is going to be elicited because of that feeling so sensation isn't just a binary yes or no there's so many levels to it which is why it's so cool that you uh, started out by separating out uh, sensation from perception and another point i wanted to bring up is the individuality between people i mean you could have the exact same sensory stimulus, you may have, for all we know, a comparable, uh, you know, pathway, sensory pathway um, that's intact or disrupted in the same way, but different people may then perceive that uh, stimulus differently. Right. Alicia, any thoughts about when you hear, or as a clinician versus now, when you hear what is sensation, what came to mind or what comes to mind? Yeah, I guess... When I talk about sensation, I immediately, when we talk about anything in this podcast, I immediately reflect on what did I think about sensation when I first started practicing versus how have I evolved 
as a clinician and a researcher to now, right? And it's really it's really funny and, and kind of fun and alarming <laughs> sometimes to think to reflect back on that time. And I when I reflect back on as a as a new clinician and thinking about sensation, to me it was just about learning the cranial nerves and in a cranial nerve exam, just testing, did you feel this? Did you feel that? But then not really knowing what to do with that information, but just marking down on my and my report, my cranial nerve exam, you know, you learn that the tongue has different cranial nerves that um, are important for sensation and for um, testing that, but you don't ever learn what to do with it. And you don't really understand, I, in my opinion, at least when I first was a clinician, what what it all means. What is what is sensation? How does it drive swallowing? Um, and how to really think about how it impacts treatment and how it impacts your clinical decision making. I think at that time I was just, it was just such a, I was such a novice. Um, And then as I've learned and as I've evolved as a clinician, you, you really realize that it's all about sensation, right? That that's really what's driving and modulating the motor output for swallowing. And I can't help but think back to how many patients maybe I had, especially early in my career, that I was giving them treatments that were motor driven, that I was giving them exercises and things of that nature when they really just, when I really needed to focus on sensory input and modulating that sensory input. Um, So I'm really glad we're talking about this today because I think it's an area in our field that in, in general, in our field, there's a lack of an understanding of how to how to harness it and how to better understand it so that we can diagnose and treat our patients more appropriately. What mm-hmm. do you guys think about that? Rachel? Well, um, I think a lot of times it's helpful to look at other uh, other therapy disciplines. So in mm-hmm. occupational and physical therapy, you know, they're obviously doing a lot of um, the analogs to our motor exercises, but they're also working on like sensory integration and sensory stimulation and exploration of different sensations and the, you know, kind of like retraining somebody's perception after something like a stroke. Um, And that's an area that I don't think we've really tapped into um, in our field. So kind of, you know, looking at um, what the other uh, disciplines are doing, but like you said, what does that even what does that even mean? You know, if we're touching different places on the tongue or different places on the face, um, number one, like, what does that mean for the overall swallowing? And number two, well, we can't technically touch the larynx or the pharynx unless we're using endoscopy, of course, which we don't always um, have at our disposal. Um, So not only do we need to figure out what that reaction and response means, but also there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of surface area that we're not even capturing, you know, right. with our oral mech. So can I, go ahead, Alicia. I was just going to say, I mean, it, it's worth pointing out that in the clinical, in a standard clinical or instrumental swallowing evaluation, there really isn't any standardized, it's, it's not integrated into those assessments well how to evaluate the integrity of these different afferent pathways that carry sensor, sensory information to the brainstem to even understand h- how to assess this in a way that's meaningful, right? I mean, this this isn't something that is um, that's really 
a part of these evaluations in the first place. So it's not it's not surprising, I think, that clinicians don't really know how to assess it or have a limited understanding because it's we're so driven to use these standardized assessments that don't integrate sensory um, information all that well. Yeah, uh, you guys have said so many things that I like have been making mental notes on. And one thing that I think pulls us to another interesting point is you guys have touched on training, you've touched on other fields and how they do this. And what does it all mean? So if you poke around someone's tongue and they go, nope, 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 but their speech is fine and then they don't have residue after you've had them have a number of boluses, what do you do with that information? On the other hand, you poke around someone's tongue, they're like, oh yeah, very sensitive. And they have a ton of residue after the swallow. And then, then what do you do with that information, right? So one reason I think we're here uh, and not where hearing is. Now, don't forget, we have in our training the capacity to understand and have been trained more on pure hearing. We all had to do pure tone hearing tests. We all had to take at least one class in undergrad and in grad school on hearing. Hearing is pure sensory. And the idea of having somebody raise their hand in an audio booth and get get a sense of what they can hear and what they can't hear, we've all been there. Uh, somehow, those general concepts about sensory testing has not translated to other areas. I don't even hear anything about speech sensation. When you all know if you've been to a dentist and there is some issue where they've had to numb your mouth, you don't sound the same, you know? So we know that sensation is important. It's just a question of whether or not we're actually, um, whether or not we're actually training in the general concepts of what sensation is. Some people have probably just heard for the first time that there is sensation versus perception. And of course, when you say it, they're like, duh, of course. But it also means that other fields that have like vision and hearing that have sensation as their primary outcome know how to test sensation and perception in a way where they know what the relationship is between perception and what someone can probably see. Otherwise, the whole field of is it ophthalmology wouldn't exist because they would never be able to correct anyone's lenses because every time they put a, a little glass circle in front of your eyes, they, there would be no connection between what you see and what your eyes are actually doing, right? Then we would never get prescriptions done properly. So we have to take a, a note from those other fields where they have been able to take perception and make sense of what the body is and is un unable to do. Now, granted, hearing information, just plain old hearing it or just plain old seeing information, what you do with that, it's not their job to make sure you don't trip over something as an ophthalmologist, right? Uh, it's, it's so meaning if they correct your vision and it turns out that you still, uh, don't have a good job with depth perception when you walk, they'll just refer you to somebody else to see whether the system, uh, the walking system is, is sort of out of their range, but we're expected to do everything. We have to take that sensory information that we can't access, like you guys said, from the pharynx and the larynx, et cetera, test it in a different way than they would actually be using it and somehow infer this brings me to my main point, which is the 6% accurate among 200 SLPs that could even identify the cranial nerves that they had to at least get a decent grade in in order to graduate tells us that what we're training students to do in terms of memorizing cranial nerves and how it's applied at any point, and that goes for motor as well, is the biggest barrier to us ever incorporating sensation.
because how can we get to the point where we're talking about perception and all these grandiose ideas and what to do with information and what it means that someone didn't cough or double swallowed in response to sensation if we don't even know the topography of what cranial nerve ends where when you poked around that you were poking the back of the tongue so you're not doing trigeminal anymore oh and it was an icy um it was a it was a, a sour thing so now you're not testing five only at the front of the tongue now you're doing five and seven because you have special sensation which is taste and general sensation which is the going to be your pressure in that case if we don't even get that basic stuff then how are we going to get to the point where we can take that it's like all right that's basic information now let's apply it to a higher level concept what do you guys think about all the things i said <laughs> i said a lot well, one thing that I wanted to um, reflect on that, um, you know, I picked up from what you were saying is that we are doing a lot. We are responsible for a lot when we talk about sensation um, and sensation and perception that we talked about this too being distinct. Well, even within those categories, there are so many different factors. Um, not to say that motor is not complicated on its own, but sensation we have taste we have smell we have somatosensation which then has its own list of different categories um, with proprioception so you know where your tongue mm -hmm. is in space <laughs> in exactly your jaw. well and even knowing the state of our mouth and our pharynx before we even introduce a sensory stimulus like our, our sensory nerves have to carry that information to our brain so that we can then tell that there's been a modification in that baseline so um you know sensation is really complex and even though people might not have a grasp on it that's okay um because it is really complex that doesn't mean we don't need to, we just need to end there but um i do think that um it is really complicated and we need to acknowledge that so i have a question so when we think about sensation so the way the way i think about it from a clinical standpoint is like why does this really matter? Well, it really matters because it's important that when you put something, like, let's just take this a real basic way, right? You put something in your mouth, your mouth has to relay information about that bolus to your brainstem, to your cortex, so that it can modulate the appropriate pharyngeal response, right? If you have a huge bolus, if you have something that's really, really textured, your mouth has to know, one, how to manipulate it, but also it needs to know, it needs to give your pharynx information about what's coming its way, right? So I think that when we talk about sensation, it's important to understand the overall integrity of the oral cavity and the body's ability to, in a global sense, read that information that's in the mouth, right? So I always wonder when we get talking about like cranial nerves and this nerve and that nerve and that nerve, does it matter as much that we're able to delineate, well, it's this cranial nerve, not that cranial nerve, versus just to be able to somehow evaluate an overall integrity of the sensory system, right? Like, when are we using the information of like, oh, well, this half of the tongue is innervated by this nerve? Do we actually translate that? Or is it more about the overall sensory system. That's I understand your question. No, I understand your question fully and it's a great one. And here's why it's the same thing as saying, do I care about a muscle or a muscle group? Because the brainstem patterns muscle groups. So that's descending. However, here's where I think it matters. 
there are certain categories of cranial nerves that are going to be more somatic or volitional. And there are others that are going to be more, um, as we might say, um, related to your gut, right? So vagus is a good example of that. It's not considered one of the more somatic volitional component, uh, cranial nerves like ocular movement or something, meaning that its job is also to innervate organs. And so we draw a lot of that from that situation. So does that mean that we can't volitionally control our larynx? No, it doesn't. But it means a lot of the function of the vagus has to do with behaviors that we don't have a lot of control over. And that's where swallowing comes in. So here's why it matters to me. Knowing where volition ends and so your response to a stimulus is a more volitional one. Like if you put something on the anterior two thirds of your tongue, you should not elicit a swallow. In fact, we would we would die because we couldn't separate out the fact that it's not time to swallow yet. We just need to chew this. The second something starts to hit the back of your throat, you elicit a swallow. You could elicit a swallow to the point where maybe you stop breathing because, or like people who might just keep coughing and coughing and they can't stop and they need to catch their breath because now you're eliciting the cranial nerves that elicit behaviors that are less able to be controlled. And they tend to be the back of the throat and the pharynx to protect us. So we have a lot of protective reflexes back there. But lip closure, like something touching your lips that makes you cough, something's wrong with you. Like something's going on with your wiring. So here's, that's why I think it's important to test the integrity and understand that sensation in one region should elicit different kinds of behaviors than others. It's why we say kids that you show them food and they gag and throw up, you know, they've got a problem, not trying to get out of eating something, but they literally cannot stop the idea of throwing up because of the sight of food makes them so grossed out because they're so orally aversive. We know that's a problem opposed to a kid that it's the first time having bananas and they just don't know what to do with it yet. And they're gagging while they work on it. So that's for me why it's not just, it's important to understand that there are zones and those zones come with behaviors that are appropriate versus inappropriate. Does that answer your question? Like in, in, in ways to interpret it, not just to yeah. check a box and say, yes, no, maybe so they felt it, but to take it a step further. Yeah, no, I think that that's a really good um, explanation and perspective because I think that people, I think it's especially with the cranial nerve exam that people don't know what to do with that information, right? It's like, okay, well, the anterior two thirds of your tongue was a little less responsive or there was a little less um, perception of sensation in that area versus the back of the tongue. And then people are like, Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and if you I don't do know, and if you don't mean, know, right? by design, it almost seems it makes perfect sense that you can't have the same cranial nerve that's job is, is to just make sure that the food doesn't slip back as the one that's supposed to make sure the food slips back. Like I'm supposed to sense stuff is sitting one spot. And of course, then we have trigeminal anterior two thirds, but the back, that's where I'm supposed to know how fast is the stuff moving down the back of my throat? That's it. That's glossopharyngeal and glossopharyngeal has very different functions in terms of gag reflex and protection than trigeminal does. Yeah. I think also thinking about the pathophysiology, you know, what does, do the results of our um, sensory evaluation contribute to the overall picture? I mean, I think, you, you know, it's hard to know, well, okay, so this person, like, I think something might be going on with their trigeminal response. Like, what do I, what do I do with that? Do I take that to um, the physician who's coordinating their care? Um, do I just keep that in my little world? You know, so not only what does that mean for my, plan of therapy, but also how does that fit into the, the larger picture? And, um, you know, I think 
that um, we could contribute more to the um, the overall uh, understanding, like what might be on with the person's system if it is a stroke. Um, but at the same time, we have to consider the function and not be overly yeah. alarmist if we do detect some kind of an isolated issue. And then we also have to think about the perception. We don't know what the person's baseline was before we're seeing them. You know, maybe they already had uh, reduced, you know, response before the onset yeah. of a stroke or whatever other uh, situation. So let's, I think it'd be interesting and helpful to talk about when we're doing a video swallow exam, what are things that you see in a video swallow exam that indicates to you that this is a sensory issue and not necessarily a motor issue? Like, what are things that you would see? We talked about residue already, but maybe let's just talk about the gamut of um, things that we can identify. That but before we, get to, before we get to a clinical space, I just want to talk about the fact that the literature is mixed in terms of what is considered, how sensation might be important, because I think it leads into your question, right? Uh, yeah. So on one hand, if you ask, I told you 100% of the people who responded said sensation's important, right? So there's this general expectation that you gotta have it, but actually the literature doesn't support it in the same way that it doesn't say that motor is, you can't just say motor is important and then just walk off, right? You have to say, well, I mean, there are some movements that are more important than others. Like obviously the UES opening to me is more important than the velum elevating. <clears throat> it's just one of those things where you've seen it over and over again. If that UES never opens, you're pretty screwed compared to if the velum doesn't really elevate, right? So that's the same way I want to take sensation and hold on, <coughs> morning phlegm, right? It's like I haven't even gotten that out yet. Um, I know. (laughs) So as an example, studies continue to show a lot of people say oral cavity is so important for modulating what kind of swallow happens or that people just thought it was just plain old important, like you had to have oral sensation. But Dr. Shakir and uh, I believe the other studies, Ponderu, I probably get Pomodoros or something like that. And then studies from my lab where we directly inject a bolus into the pharynx and bypass the oral cavity. It forces a swallow. Now, is that swallow able to modulate very well? No. That means if I squirt in 0.5 ml versus 5 ml, so that's a tenfold difference, the swallow doesn't change much. Whereas if you had a tenfold difference in bolus size in your oral cavity, your swallow would modulate because it had that information in advance. This is a big bolus. I should have longer UAS opening, or this, this is a small bolus. I don't need to open my UAS that long because I don't want to swallow a bunch of air, okay? But if you just squirt it right into the pharynx, you get kind of a one note swallow. So does that mean that oral sensation is not important? No, it means oral sensation's job is to give, as Alicia said, the pharynx a leg up so it appropriately uh, plans the right kind of swallow. Now, what does that mean in terms of things like fluoro? Well, let me do, just do one other example. Many studies show that the kinds of modulations to bolus type, because this is where fluoro is more important. You're not poking around people's mouth. You're giving them different boluses. And our literal job in fluoro is obviously to look at physiology, but we test different boluses because we expect a change. 
However, most clinicians couldn't tell you what that change should be. It just should not be aspiration or residue. But what should the change be that you're looking for based on bolus properties? Well, you'd have to understand the literature and know the literature suggests different things about bolus properties, be it viscosity or volume or taste, right? It's hard to get away from taste with, with barium. So we have to incorporate taste, right? And as you said, Rachel, it needs to be a change relative to the taste you have in your mouth because saliva itself has a taste, like you have your own baseline saliva taste and that's been studied as well. But the point for me is, if you don't know what kind of change to expect and which ones are nice to have versus essential to have, then you don't know when you need to act and when you need to go, okay, that didn't happen, but that's okay, right? Um, Here's an example, volume, critical. Almost every single study that looks at different kinds of bolus types tends to find more changes as volume changes than taste. So if you have a mildly sour bolus versus an intensely sour bolus, we know that the sw- and the volume is the same and everything else is the same. You might have some moderate changes, but they're not the critical ones that ensure safety and efficiency of the swallow. Same thing with viscosity. It's a point where it's so thick that if you don't double, if you don't uh, double swallow that, or if you don't piecemeal it, where you take half the bolus and the other half, then of course you're going to end up with a big glump in your in your uh, vollecula or piriform sinuses. And so those are the kinds of things that we should say, okay, this is a very large piece of pudding. This person should piecemeal it and break it up in their oral cavity where they do one swallow, then another. Oh, they just shoved it all the way down and there's residue. I wonder if they're aware of how heavy that bolus was. Those are the kinds of ways to pull the information in, whereas saying heighten the bolus, give it more sour, even if it does change, you know, we do know that you habituate and after a while, that starts to taste, the taste isn't as jarring anymore. So you might not even have a faster swallow response. So those are the ways that I think of the literature advising us when it comes to fluoro in terms of saying, what does the literature suggest about bolus properties and how we should change? Which ones should I focus on and utilize best in fluoro versus which ones are like nice to have? For and for me, that's taste. Yeah, I and to get on your point about volume, I think when I have this conversation about volume with clinicians, this more often than not um, elicits an aha moment where um, because clinicians tend to be risk averse in our field, when somebody aspirates a certain bolus volume, right, 5 ml, 10, 10 ml or something, I think the natural gut reaction for clinicians is to give a smaller bolus versus to try to upregulate that sensory system and give a larger bolus to see if they have a better swallowing response, whether that's um, a faster swallow reaction time, whether it's a faster um, uh, laryngeal closure reaction time or a bigger UES opening. I think that in general, clinicians don't kind of push the envelope to like, well, let me give a big, let me give a bigger swallow and see if this is a more positive result. And so when we talk about the sensory system, you mentioned volume is the first thing. I think that that's the easiest thing for us to manipulate as clinicians to get a better understanding of the sensory system during swallowing. And I, I think we should talk about that for just a moment because that's a an easy thing to directly translate and bring back into the clinic if you're listening to this is, mm-hmm. is to manipulate that and to use it in your clinical toolbox to be a detective really about the sensory system. 
Yeah, and I'll Rachel, I just wanted to jump on that, and I promise I will shut up. But what you're saying is, I I mean, I'm not going to shut up, but let's be real. (laughs) Um, I will pause. So that that to me, what you said is the easiest thing, but it's also the hardest thing, right? Again, Mm -hmm. it's understanding the system and that its job is to take that information. But what don't we do? We don't heighten the situation to help them. So if a child needs to do something and you know they have perceptual issues, you say, now that's a bigger ball. What do we have to do with the bigger ball? That's right, we have to step back. And you start to explain things to a kid because you know that their experience is diminished compared to an adult, right? What do we not do with our patients? One, at the bedside, we're supposed to be testing the same thing at the bedside as you do on fluoro. So on the bedside, you test these bolus volume changes and you don't ask them if you know, they noticed that those volumes were different. You just say, oh, they coughed on this versus the other. We don't even know what a cough means and we somehow assume some went in the airway. Our job is to take that experience and see if they could even perceptually tell you were the boluses getting gradually bigger? Did they change in any way? And then you have to replicate that in fluoro because as you said, you're a detective. You test the same bolus volumes from fluoro to see if you can make a connection between when you could see where the bolus went and an appropriate response versus when you couldn't see it to see it. And then you still ask them, did those volumes change? You knew they changed in fluoro, but what if they were like, no, they were exactly the same. And you tested a one ML, a three ML, a five ML, a 10 ML, a 20 ML. And you did those volumes change? No, they were the same. Holy crap, that's good information to have. Whether they perform properly or not, you're documenting their perceptual ability to take that information in. And it could mean that cognitively, they had some capacity, not some issues with perception, but their brainstem was like, this guy doesn't know that these change, but I know what to do with the sensory information. So now you can differentiate their perceptual ability versus what the body can do as it takes in different information, independent of their ability to say, this bolus is bigger and smaller. And you know that perceptually, you can't rely on them as much as a patient. Again, and in terms of telling you what they feel, again, this is understanding the whole system and taking your questions and saying, I can tease out this part versus that part of the swallow. And then finally, I'll say Cameroonis has a study um, showing that in healthy people, if you change the bolus uh, and you do, and you sort of double the size, right? People, healthy adults only will say that there's a twofold difference or the bolus is twice as large if the bolus is in fact four times as large. So we don't have this logarithmic scale in our oral cavity, but we do have the capacity to uh, to understand that a magnitude has changed. Maybe not exact bolus amounts like, hey, 5ml and 10ml, was it twice as big? We're not good at that. We will probably get to 20ml and say 20ml is twice as big as 5, but we can 100% say that 5ml and 10ml are different. In fact, we had a study going at UF showing that healthy people can differentiate a 1ml change in bolus volume reliably. So when you have that kind of information and your patient can't differentiate a 5 ml increase, that's a significant bit of information that can help you to go, okay, you can't tell me that it's bigger, but let's see on flora whether or not your system changes relative to it. And then I'm done. Okay, Rachel. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So many points. Like this is why sensation is so exciting to me. There's just so much to Is sensation sensational? Oh, yes. It's giving me all (laughs) the (laughs) Um, So the first thing that I that Alicia said that I really want to highlight again and basically just reiterate what she said, because I think it's so important is we assume that if we have 
a larger volume that the amount of potential aspiration is also going to increase. Whereas if we have a smaller volume, we're going to assume, oh, then if they aspirate, it's going to be a smaller amount, which can actually be a fallacy. Um, that's not necessarily um, a direct, uh, you know, we don't know that for sure. So um, I really wanted to highlight that because I think we don't stop and think about that enough. We assume that, you know, the smaller is going to be safer, the bigger is going to be uh, more likely to um, you know, cause a risk when in fact, you know, one larger swallow can give us so much information and, you know, it could be the reverse where in fact the person is, uh, aspirates less with the larger bullets. Obviously you want to test it. I'm not saying categorically that one or the other is true, but I think that's so important to highlight. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention was, um, you know, you know, so you started talking about what we do at bedside and how that correlates to what we do in fluoro. Well, if you think about all of our swallow screen measures, so many of them were testing a larger volume, you yeah. know, um, to actually elicit some kind of a response. Now, granted, we can't see what's going on inside because we're not doing instrumental evaluation, but we're still looking for signs and symptoms based on the swallowing of a larger volume. So to cut off fluoro at a five or even a 10 ml when we see um, aspiration is not going to give us that same information. You know, it's not quite going to match up with what we're doing in our swallow screen. Um, and with the magnitude estimation, you know, I think that uh, that's so interesting that there's not it's more of a logarithmic relationship between the actual change in volume and the perception of that change. And to me, I wonder, you know, well, what if we provided some kind of feedback or retraining? Like we just, I don't think that anybody has done any kind of research in that area in terms of, you know, can we change someone's um, perception of the different volumes and what impact that would have clinically? Yeah, and I, I actually did have that as a note here, which is we use feedback all the time to change people's sensory motor integration. And we clearly show in our studies that when people are training a novel swallowing behavior and they see what they're doing versus just feeling it, it can be quite different. It can go in multiple different ways. It's not that feedback is always better. Sometimes feedback interferes with their intrinsic feedback system's capacity to figure it out on their own. So here is an example. If you were training to uh, learn a dance move, right? And, and most dancers start out with a, a room with a giant mirror so that they can see themselves relative to others. But you're not a good dancer if you can't make it to the stage because you still have to have the mirror. At some point, you can't always have external and internal feedback sensory systems to tell your body what to do. You often need to be able to say, all right, now I can rely solely on my intrinsic feedback to do this. And so we do know that we do that with our teeth and our eyeballs as healthy people. Here's what I mean. If you're somebody who's prone to getting green stuff between your teeth that you can't feel, but for years people were saying, you have something stuck here, you get to the point where when you're eating, you start sort of feeling around for it and, stick, and sticking your finger there to take it out, even if it's not there because you've heard so much that you tend to get green stuff stuck there. Now, does that mean you feel it? No, but you reach for it. And that's the same thing that happens when we train patients to cough habitually, or we train people to double swallow. The very first, um, the very first controlled study on visual biofeedback was in individuals, in manner 2014, individuals with Parkinson's disease who tended to have residue after the swallow, which is redundant, residue. And so what would happen is one group trained with fees 
and the other group did not. Meaning every time after they swallowed, they saw that there was still stuff there. And the encouragement for them to double swallow was better if they had the fees because they saw it there. And so habitually they learned to double swallow better. Now, did it change their capacity to feel? We don't know because in that study, they didn't have a testing situation where they continue to, to um, they continue to, ask about sense about perception throughout the study, like the beginning, middle and end to see if in addition to behavioral changes, meaning double swallows, did they also start to report and I feel it more. So we don't actually know, for instance, whether or not that's a component that we can rely on. But this takes me to my point about studies and clinicians not collecting data on sensation. Uh, both clinicians and studies need to be incorporating sensation into uh, questions about sensation into what they do. So if you don't keep asking your patient throughout therapy, as I said in this survey, only 41% of people incorporate sens uh, sensation, sensory testing, meaning do you continue to ask them about what they feel? Do you know if it's any different from when you first saw them? We know a lot of patients in acute care could have issues where they're just every, all the whole system is down. By the time they get to inpatient rehab and sniffs, they're not continually being asked about what they feel. They're just being penalized for coughing more, which is strange because you would think maybe their sensory system's coming back. And actually that's a good thing that they're coughing, but because we don't ask about sensation, we just use this cough behavior as a way to say, cough equals bad, we don't know how to take the system as a whole and say, of course they're coughing more. They had all those secretions down there. They're noticing it and they're bringing it up. Good. What is it that you feel? We just say cough equals bad. Or we use cough as a way to understand swallowing, which, you know, the, a lot of the cough studies will say if you cough, then people who don't cough tend to have aspiration more. But I mean, there are so many more factors that need to be considered. And that's another issue where sometimes I think in our field for swallowing, because swallowing is hard to test, we then use a what we think a closely related measure. But here's the question. Remember when gag was the thing that people tested to see if they had a swallow and that got like bludgeoned over the head? Now it's cough. Why is cough okay, but gagging not? Gagging at least incorporates the tongue, the pharynx, and it's while it's the opposite direction, <clears throat> excuse me, more, more morning phlegm, while it's the opposite direction that they're pushing the bolus, it still gives you information. You have to close your larynx to gag. You have to have some kind of constriction to get it up. You have to open your UES to do it and you have to stick your tongue out. Now, while they're opposite behaviors, not everybody does it all the same same way to the same stimulus. I don't understand why we're using cough as a way to understand swallowing, but not gag just because it's not in fashion anymore. We need to be taking the system to understand this. I went on a I major have, I have a couple of things to say. One <laughs> is we have covered a lot of topics in this podcast. This is not the one where I thought you were going to bring out your biggest fucking soapbox because <laughs> we're on Zoom right now, guys. And I swear to God, uh, we can only see ENS's ankles because she is so high on the soapbox right now. <laughs> this, this threw me. I wasn't prepared for this. I, I didn't know I was going to say it. My I coffee know. is not strong enough for the size of your soapbox right now. <laughs> <laughs> but wait a minute. Do you guys hear? Wait, I just want to make sure. I want to make sure you guys hear what I'm saying. Did you guys hear what I said or did I not make sense? When you start going into cough, I was like, oh, shit. We're going to have need three different episodes on this. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, why would that? Why would that be the sensory thing that we would test to say, 
uh, response sensory thresholds to induce a cough to a particulate, not even to a bolus, to a particulate, predict so-and-so. Basically, it's a way to say how sense how sensate is the system. And I, I will give you that. How sensate is the system and does it respond? But we all know that responding to a cough because there's capsaicin or fog, an irritant in the larynx is not the same thing as micro aspiration or bolus, our, our larynx is equipped to manage a certain amount of fluid that it's not necessarily for things that could be pollen, which we, which irritates. And we have whole, like we have allergists that dedicated to one, pieces of pollen. So we know the system responds differently where a cough is appropriate in one and the other one, maybe it's a double swallow that's appropriate depending on the zone of the of vagus that's been, inter that's been impacted. Super, yeah. uh, superior well, laryngeal nerve or recurrent laryngeal nerve. Well, what's hard about the cough literature for me is that, and I'm, I'd be curious, you guys know more about this than I do, so I'd be curious about your, um, your thoughts on this, is that when cough is tested experimentally, it's often um, elicited with capsaicin. So capsaicin um, triggers chemoreceptors in the upper and lower airway. It's an, ir it's an irritant but it's a chemical irritant. So the chemoreceptors are sensing that chemical irritant, which is different than what aspiration would be, which- And it depends on what you're eating, because if you're eating something so spicy, actual, and it goes down the wrong way. We know we uh, cough differently. Yeah. Anyway, so my, my point is that we're, we're testing something that's different. So our stimulus is different than what the actual experience is of aspiration. But it's not completely not similar either. It's completely different. Yeah. It's a nuance that's really important. That's really, really important. So um, I have a hard time when we use um, something like capsaicin to make a statement about the overall sensory um, status of, of, the, of the whole upper airway or of swallowing and, and making these generalizations. I find it, it's, it's not, not that we have a better way. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying it's bad more than we should but also it's not just the stimulus it's also the delivery mechanism mid swallow having something divert in uh bifurcate into the larynx and into the pharynx um is not the same thing as inhaling deeply to to huff some capsaicin the circumstance that you're getting ready to do where you're expected to cough and it's a cough study certainly changes what you expect to do if you're swallowing, you don't expect to be coughing, but if it elicits a cough, it's probably obviously a stimulus that's significant enough to do it, as opposed to a cough study where you inhale particulates to cough. How much does that impact the likelihood that you're gonna cough? I think the scenarios are so terribly different. It's like using swimming, which is a form of locomotion to understand walking and saying, well, you know, people who can swim, you know, they're gonna be better at that. Now there are overlapping mechanisms that you can tap into one when the other one's not possible, but they will never be the same. And I, I'm not saying that there's a suggestion that they're the same, but sometimes I agree with you, the conclusions are very far reaching. Like you can use this cough, this device, and if they don't cough at this point, they're probably gonna silently aspirate. That to me is like a major leap. And I don't think anybody is saying that per se, but I think that sometimes, and this is true with everything in, in, the, in our literature, is that we can say something that's, you know, a causal relationship or, you know, we're, we're careful about how this is worded, but then as it's like the game of telephone, right? And then as it gets translated through 
um, different mediums and then down to the clinician, it gets that message gets watered down. And then I'm turns- saying that that's exactly what's happening. Yeah. The research causation and correlation get mixed up. And so the research has to be very clear and say, this is purely a relationship. This does not mean that it causes, but it doesn't say that. Therefore, the message is, I'm on the ground right now. It's Monday morning and I have a patient and I need something because I don't have floral. What can I use? Well, you know, the literature suggests that your sensory response to a cough tends to be lower in people who have silent aspiration. Therefore, at the bedside, you might consider this since you don't have it. And then it turns into, I have objective numbers. And these objective numbers mean I can say something more than I could say before. Rachel, you've waited a long time. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, that kind of touches on one thing that I wanted to focus on was with a cough, we do have, you can have numbers, right? And I feel like so much of what we do is hard to quantify or like a clinician might feel like they don't have time to actually do a standardized measure or they're just not familiar with the science of you know, whatever um, yields numbers, but anything that yields numbers can feel like a big deal. But I think we then have to fit that quantitative information back into the bigger overall piece of overall function and the overall sensory motor system. And the numbers come from the amount of stimulus, not the cough itself. Mm -hmm. So you can quantify, just like with e-stim, you can quantify the milliamps that you apply to the neck and say, well, at point at one milliamp, you get this response, but at 20 milliamps, you get that. So you can dose it in cough in terms of the stimulus, just like e-stim. Now the response, that's where the quant, you know, you, you don't necessarily know what's going on. But I think sometimes clinicians might say, wow, I can apply a number to how much I've given them as opposed to a bolus, which might be different in terms of, well, how sour is this bolus? So they feel a little bit more like I can write down a number in my documentation. And it might be misleading in terms of what it actually means for the function of swallowing. And I think another difficult thing is that um, when we're doing research, a lot of times we try to remove as many extraneous variables as possible. So when we're talking about sensation, okay, well, let's just focus on volume and all of the other sensory aspects are held, um, you know, to be the same. So same temperature, um, same viscosity, same taste, et cetera, et cetera. But in the real world, you know, each bolus, like if you're eating a full meal, you have multiple different foods, um, you have whatever you happen to be drinking with that meal today, there are so many different sensory components going on at the same time. There's so much overlap. Um, So just because, um, you know, a specific research study has focused on one aspect of sensation, that's not to then say that the actual real world experience of sensation and perception of that sensation is that simplistic, right? Yeah. And in fact, In fact, here's the other question. What if I decided I was going to go on a sneeze fest in terms of my research and everybody, I replicated all the cough studies, but I added sneezing and gagging and it was exactly the same outcome. Meaning people who were bad at coughing in response to a threshold, bad at sneezing and bad at gagging also had more silent aspiration. Is it cough or is the system down? Is that what we're learning? Sensory is poor. Even saccades, they go to poke their eyeball and they don't respond. The system is down. As opposed to the mechanism associated with getting a particulate in this area of your pharynx or larynx directly relates to aspiration, but not sneezing because that's in your nose. Then, whoa, okay, you have to have control conditions in order to say this condition is the one that matters because we don't know if all conditions would matter equally. 
I'm sorry about the science. Let's go back to the clinicians. (laughs) (laughs) Here's another question for you guys then. I would say, um, can we talk a little bit about the range of normal variability and that it's possible based on what you said, uh, Rachel, that a response is not always going to be the same. So for instance, if you aspirate, coughing is going to be more an appropriate response. But if you penetrate, often, especially as flash penetration, it means it came right back out. The system doesn't need to do anything. There's nothing there. Continue to tell your brain, we might be in trouble. We might be in trouble because it already um, ejected. But what about the so we, we get our coughing versus our double swallowing, et cetera. But what about things like swallow onset time? There is, among all things, it seems to have the biggest range in terms of when someone starts to swallow. Healthy people can start with the bolus still in the oral cavity all the way down to the piriform sinuses. And I don't necessarily want to harp on that point for the sake of saying it because we've said it over and over again. But the important thing is why is the system set up that way? To me, that's the bigger thing that people need to understand so they know what to do with that information, right? So if I start my swallow, and it's v- I'm very early, the bolus isn't even anywhere near my pharynx and my swallow's already started, meaning my high weight has burst. And then somebody in my undergrad class starts their swallow with thin liquids with the bolus and the piriform. Does that mean that I'm better or worse? No, it doesn't. What's interesting is variability in your body's and human's ability to sort of respond to something is really what matters. Alicia, what are you laughing at? All I could think when you said burst your hyoid was you know, <laughs> an explosion. <laughs> with you're a about pen. to say to somebody that's to blow their mind, like, I'm about to burst your bubble right now. Can we just start a trend where it's like, I'm about to burst your hyoid right now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, you know what? Um, for the longest time, I used to say, I used to have these slides that said highway burst. And I don't know if it was one of my kids are like, wait, it explodes in your neck. I'm like, not that kind of burst. Like, wait, are there, are there bones exploding in my neck right now? Meeting fast anterior forward movement related to the swallow, like it blurs on fluoro. So you know the swallow has started. But the reason we have that variability in our sensories, our sensory motor integration, which means I feel this and for me, I start my swallow here versus you feel this and you don't start it till there is what we call normal variability. And the reason is that if everybody had the exact same threshold for behavior, then we would have so much error and inability to manage Meaning if we are, if we can all see in different amounts of light, for instance, some people are amazing. They're like vampires in terms of their capacity to move around at night and get a sense of what the room is versus other people. Visual acuity is different. Hearing is different in terms of people who can hear really, really well. People who never need glasses until they're 50. Normal variability means that we're not exactly the same because our systems need to be able to adapt depending on certain things. It could very well be that weaning means that I swallow Uh, I initiate my swallow differently in terms of sensation than somebody else. It could also be that my larynx is higher in my neck. So relative to where my larynx is, that's actually the difference. Maybe people whose larynxes are more descended actually have more time. And that, that warning signal of the bolus approaching the larynx they can go deeper, like the bolus can get closer to the larynx in those people, right? We haven't considered that this variability, the system kind of knows what it's doing, and we're trying to force it into a different box than it actually should have. And we are supposed to be, we're supposed to be celebrating diversity in more ways than one, which is your capacity to be normal, but different than what people expect. And I kind of feel like 
some of the textbooks that made this hard line that this should happen by this time were well-meaning, right? They were well-meaning, meaning that us clinicians could make a decision, a binary decision in the absence of really good training. But now we need to be able to get more nuanced and say, let's use this as a way to understand the system and why it's normal to have this kind of range, just like skin color. Why is it make sense that people from African descent are darker so we don't burn every day? It makes sense. But before it was just like, it's just wrong. So this whole idea needs to come into swallowing more. What do you guys think? Preach. Well, in addition to, you know, having that uh, variability in terms of response, we already have all of these factors that are predispositioning us to experience, uh, to perceive sensation differently. I mean, there's age as well. So, um, you know, swallow reaction time to uh, like a different viscosity or volume, you know, you can look at the effect of age on that. Um, with sensation, especially taste, you can even look at um, a factor like sex, um, super time of, time of day, medications that you're on. So many different factors are going to contribute to how we, you know, perceive uh, whatever sensory stimulus. So, so that's well, kind of where it brings, it brings me back to, and I think we probably talked about this in the last podcast that the system is so much smarter than we are that we're, we're trying to investigate it, and it compensates in ways that we don't even begin to understand and that we can't even recognize by watching it on Floro that sometimes I think we just need to let, take a step back and just let the system figure itself out. Um, and being able to engage in that wide range of variability is a huge aspect of compensation that it allows for there to be a thousand different ways to compensate for error. A and when we medical when we try to get in there and manipulate it for it, I just sometimes imagine the system to be like, back the fuck off. I'm trying to figure <laughs> this out. You don't know what you're doing. You're coming into my house with this limited understanding of what I'm actually capable of and trying to tell me what to do. Like, yeah. that's how I, I see it sometimes. And I think sometimes our job as clinicians is just to provide the experiences so that it can compensate for itself, not take away the experiences. Yeah. Well, also, that's, like, that's what like, is, that's, go ahead. And also, like, when we see something on fluoro, so say we see a faster swallow reaction time, is that better for that individual given the, whatever they're swallowing than a shorter, than a longer swallow reaction time? So, is a faster swallow reaction time always necessarily better or, I guess, safer? A lot of times we think in those terms than a longer one. I think the reason that, and I get your point, I think the reason that we are, because you know that Parkinson's disease, they often say that their issue is that things are too fast, right? Uh, so you could be right that sometimes things aren't properly coordinated, even if they happen in, if they happen in the right sequence too early, the, every, every event is too early, maybe that's not good, as opposed to they happen in the right sequence at the time that that needed to happen. Um, but I think the, what we're suffering from here is our field came scrambling into the medical area out of necessity, unlike anthropologists. The reasons we probably understand more about canaries than we understand swallowing, despite the amount of money that goes toward our salaries and the, the people who study canaries. I don't know why it's said canaries, but it's because they spent a lot of time watching birds. They, be, 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 I mean, people who study nature, they, they spent years and years just observing monkeys. 
before they even dare to try and make a whole lot of assumptions. If we would spend a lot of time just observing the range of how swallowing works, then we would know what questions are worth asking and answering. We would see how how the system compensates for itself. We would be able to do that. But what we do is we say, there's if there's a problem, I'm going to find it. And if I find it, I'm going to force this this solution onto it. When we don't even know what a problem is, because we haven't seen the rate enough swallows to know. And I do think that that's a big issue in our training that can be fixed, which is most clinicians have seen a very limited number of swallows before they end up in a hospital where now their job is to do something. So they don't even know... They don't even know if they're looking at a normal swallow, but they have to do something. They have to, they have to decide a diet. And the worst fear is they re- that they identify normal when it was really abnormal, not the reverse, because they don't trust the system's capacity to, to manage itself. Yeah, there is no Jane Goodall of swallowing, unfortunately. No. <laughs> I've been, I mean, I have I actually have a funny slide where I talk it's actually on the swallowing training education portal. And it's called and I talk about the fact that we've never seen a swallow in the wild. And I have this whole stuff with monkeys. And I said, what if it's possible that when we watch a swallow, the swallow obviously knows we're watching like this human being knows that they've walked in, you have a tube in their nose, or they're you're telling them to swallow and floral and everybody's watching your swallow. So humans already know that this background activity is being watched. So or it's if not you exactly say the word swallow, like exactly. So people who never think about swallowing, if you just say, I study swallowing, people will be like, oh, gosh, exactly. I, I feel like I'm, I'm and they start grabbing their now. Neck. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so so think about it where you are signed up to be and you, your decision about your health or in your research study is going to be whether or not you're swallowing normal. Now you are corticalizing the crap out of the swallow, which is really supposed to be a brainstem background behavior for the most part. So for all we know, the swallow knows it's being watched and it's just like the monkey sitting on the branch, just twiddling their thumbs. And the second we stop looking, it's messy and dirty, like they're having sex and just doing all kinds of crazy things so they know we're not watching anymore. And swallowing is really messy. If you've ever had somebody just take a meal in, it's not like there's a moment where stuff isn't sticking somewhere in the neck until they're done. Then at the end of the meal, they sort of have some water and clear it out, whatever. But we give them these discrete amounts so we can measure everything. And that's not the way it really looks. If we actually saw how messy it is normally, then we actually wouldn't be as freaked out about it. But we haven't seen enough swallows in normal situations because we are limited by the instrumentation we have. Yeah. Well, let's transition now. I know we've been talking for a while, but let's transition quickly to, you know, things that we see in fluoro and how to test sensation a little bit better in fluoro and how that can um, impact our treatment planning. So like an example I think of is, um, you know, we talked about bolus volume, right? And that if you swallow, um, if you swallow a bolus and the UES doesn't open wide enough, we'll say, or long enough, right, for that bolus, I think there's a bias to think that the UES can't open wide enough or that it can't open long enough because of some sort of motor impairment. Oh, maybe they have a stricture or maybe they have some sort of structural abnormality when in reality, maybe it's just that they didn't, the UES didn't receive the right sensory information for that bolus. And so I think that there's, when we are in flora, we always have to be cognizant of maybe this is a sensory issue that is appearing to be a motor issue when it's not, right? Um, so I think one immediate thing that a clinician can take into fluoro is just to take the idea 
that maybe this is a sensory impairment into your brain when you're watching a fluoro to better understand your bias. Toward- but can I can I suggest that that's all fine and they'll walk in and go, maybe this is sensory and leave it there. But to know what to do with it is the missing part. So you were saying your good example was the UES one. And if you guys want to go back to the Swallowing Physiology series, which we did last year, and click on the UES, uh, I think it's pharynx and UES, you'll hear us talk about this in more detail. But ultimately, what you're saying requires a little context, which is when you say you, you have a bias to think it's a motor issue when it's really sensory, what we're saying is sensory motor integration means that the sensory information you have determines the motor output you end up with. So if I say jump over the safety pin or jump over this monster truck tire, that even if I if, if I say jump over this and jump over this, you can see that it's a safety pin versus a monster truck tire. Don't you think you're going to have a running start in one and not the other? Why? Why are you changing your movement? Because you don't want to trip. Right. So the UES is the same way. It doesn't want to close prematurely, but it doesn't want to open too long because it needs to make sure the bolus is clear from the pharynx. But you don't want to have a bunch of air in your esophagus. So it takes information it's received before the swallow starts in the oral cavity to make a decision about how long it should be open. It's just like the sliding doors at the grocery store. It doesn't chop off groups of people when they walk through. It continues to see that people are coming so it stays open. But it doesn't stay wide open all day long for one person because it's not supposed to be open all the time. So it's that sensory information before that sets up the motor. And knowing that means that you can take that into the floral suite and say, okay, okay, okay. They didn't open as long as they should have for the first bolus I gave them, which is 3ml thin liquid. Now, because I want to know if the system can move along the scale, maybe it's not moving the same, using the same range I would use, where I can use more of a range. But even if it opens a little bit longer for a 5ml or a 10ml, that tells me there is modulation happening, but it's not the same modulation I would use. That is how you pull that information in, but you gotta understand how the system should work normally to know what assumptions to make, right? And I think it's taking it a step further from just saying, oh, well, I saw aspiration or I saw inadequate uh, UES relaxation on this one bolus, therefore this person can have 10 mLs of liquid at a time. You know, it's taking it beyond just the flat out, this is what I recommend, like this is where I don't see anything abnormal. It's like, okay, let's look at it more holistically and also determine where where we're gonna take this. Like, is this a sensory issue, like you said, that we need to pull apart? So it's not just having the, you know, one and done, you know, this is what we're gonna recommend, but this is what we see going on. Um, You know, how can we then incorporate that into our treatment? Yeah. And, and can we use positioning? Modulation. Mm-hmm. And can we use positioning as a way to understand this? The worst thing anyone would ever want to do to someone with a swallow onset delay is have them do a chin up. In fact, what they do is they try to compensate for the delay and put the chin down to hopefully make the bolus move more slowly over the back of the tongue. But if you're doing rehab, maybe what you do is not make the swallow, not either make the bolus move more slowly by thickening it or giving them the same bolus with the chin down. At some point, don't you want to understand their capacity to have a challenge in order to rehab in the same way that you do strengthening exercises, you make something harder so that there's resistance. What about timing? Timing is really where swallow is a bigger issue than uh, pure strength. 
You have timing is so important for swallowing. You have all these events happening at the same time in a very short amount of time that we know you can be off by 200 milliseconds and the whole thing's fucked up. But yeah. if you don't have as much strength and you end up having to double swallow or rinse something thicker down or maybe put have some water with your with your steak there's are compensations that don't met, that don't impact you quite as well because perhaps you can't produce as much force and you have some residue, right? So I do think that there are things we can do in fluoro to see how can we challenge the system? Why aren't we turning our head to the stronger side to force the bolus through the weaker side so that side can actually feel something once in a while? If the bolus only ever goes to the side that we think is sensate, how are we ever going to get information on the side that's never felt anything? It's the whole constraint-induced therapy module mo idea that they use in OT where they force the bad arm to work and tie down the good arm because how else is that arm ever going to get better? Yeah, Same with well, sensation. It's, it's, you know, in, in the physical therapy world, it, it, I find these analogies to be so, um, you know, so beautiful because it just makes so much sense. So like in, in the physical therapy world, when there's somebody that has difficulty walking for whatever reason, they, instead of saying, oh, well, here's a wheelchair, you know what they do is they actually take them out to community ambulate over and do overground walking in really complex situations that they probably can't handle very well, but they take them into these situations so that they can figure it out. And they get lots of sensory motor integration to learn how to step over stones and to walk down a path that has a lot of gravel and to step up on sidewalks and to figure it out. They challenge the system in a in a way that allows them to actually improve instead of just giving them a wheelchair and saying, well, this is going to make you not fall. Right. I mean, that's the same thing as your example to me as giving somebody a, a, a chin tuck and saying, well, this does make it easier for you versus a chin up that says we're going to challenge your system so that you can figure out how to manage this difficult situation that you have. Especially when people give someone a sour bolus because their swallow response is short, that's still compensation. Yep. That's heightening the bolus as opposed to making their system learn how to make mistakes and respond faster. Such that now the regular normal situation with my head in neutral position feels easy. This feels easy compared to putting my chin up. Now, I don't have to worry. You know when people go, I don't want people to go out there and give everybody chin ups. Don't worry, this is speech pathology. No one's going to go out there and make everyone have a chin up. In fact, they're just going to hem and haw over the idea of someone with a delay in a chin up and actually report me to ASHA that I suggested it, right? So I'm not worried for a second that someone's going to, that now everybody's going to go out and give all their delays chin ups, right? But seriously, I don't understand why we're not even... And the other thing, a chin up doesn't have to be the point where you have like a flat wall where you're like, like all the way up. It can be a slight one with a smaller bolus. It can be a, it could be a saliva swallow. We're not promoting yeah. waterboarding. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So and with, with adaptation and sensitivity, you know, I, I think if we waited, if we were like, okay, you're not going to have, you're not going to do any sequential swallows. We're just going to, you know, take that water cup away from bedside. You're only going to use, you know, a cup that gives you whatever amount at a time. Well, by the time the person goes home and they haven't even had any experiences for however long, however long they've been in the hospital with sequential swallowing, which let's face it, they're probably going to do when they get home. Yeah. No straw. It's probably going to be no even straw. worse because they haven't had that sensory experience. We've completely removed that sensory experience and actually, you know, made their capacity to handle it even yeah. worse. And Leash, you just said no straws. <clears throat> Among the many clinicians who might say no straws, if I say, 
explain to me the physiology between straws and no straws and why in this patient <clears throat> a straw is leading to <clears throat> excuse me aspiration before the swallow well again you have to understand that the straw is delivering the bolus farther back in the oral cavity so their response time has to be better they have to be able to pick up the bolus suddenly in glossopharyngeal region if the straw is way back but you can have a straw in the front of the mouth with their chin slightly down to just give them the same opportunity if they have oral issues with getting the bolus to their mouth without spilling on themselves. We can modulate, but again, it's understanding what it is about the system and what it is about straws that is the issue. In fact, why wouldn't straws be used as an interesting technique among those people who need to learn to swallow faster? Because you suspect glossopharyngeal posterior tongue sensation is not being uh, treated, is not being targeted properly. If you have a straw that projects farther to the back of the throat and they have to learn to swallow faster, why wouldn't you use that in floor and say, okay, this is a way to get them to pay attention. And you have to say to the patient, which I have, this bolus is going to come fast or this bolus is big. What do we have to think about? Let the cortex be involved as opposed to expecting the oral cavity to take that information the way it usually does. They need information that's what we call exogenous from outside, meaning this is a bigger bolus. What do we do with the bigger bolus? Well, first we concentrate, right? And then you also have the bottom up, the endogenous sensory information also expecting it. Now the whole body's expecting this more challenging situation. So you're giving sensation in multiple modalities because we want them to plan the right thing. So we actually need to use our SLP background where we're able to explain something hopefully and set up a scenario and inform the person to expect something so that they can actually respond properly. I'm so glad you brought up the endogenous and exogenous um, because uh, the effect of our cortical cognitive processes on sensation and on motor activities has uh, been studied again more in other disciplines. And I think that that's some, a tool that we can use. And I think a lot of us as clinicians do use it, but we might not be aware of that we are you know, trying to harness, this, harness somebody's attention to a specific uh, sensation or to a specific uh, motor activation. So what are some other ways that we can upregulate the sensory system or target sensation in therapy? What do you guys Well, think? it's all the stuff before the food starts. You, you said, Alicia, something about, uh, you, you, you're earlier talking about something and I was going to jump in and, and say, in addition to add to what you're saying, which is before the food gets to our mouth, we know what it is. It's like I usually say, your plan is already in place depending on what you're bringing to your mouth. And so what that means is, if the example I usually give is, if you pick up a spoonful of peas and put it in your oral cavity, you already know that your plan has to be to make it cohesive. Nobody's taking down you know, a spoonful of peas just as they are and not manipulating them, otherwise you're probably gonna choke, right? And the reverse, if you have a big meatball, your goal is to break it down. But if I give you if I blindfold you and give you and say, this is a spoonful of peas, and then it's a meatball, you don't go, well, she said it's peas, so I'm, I'm not gonna do it. I'm gonna sell my meatball plan. You actually take your sensory information and you change a plan. You're like, wait, that that's not what I expected. Now I have to change my plan. So we need to use the period before the food has even entered their oral cavity to prep them properly for it. 
that is essential stuff where if a person has good vision, good smell, good ability to understand what you're saying. And they can even say, these are peas. What are your goal? With peas, I need to make it a ball, a cohesive form, and then I need to swallow it. And I need to chew for at least this time if they're like impulsive or something, or the reverse might be true. But however, we need to be able to upregulate the sensory is use all the information before the oral cavity, because if we've tested that the oral cavity is deficient, it could use a leg up, which is get ready for this, get ready for that. What do, what movements do we need to make? That's a great way to do it. We do it with mirrors, with lip closure, if they go, if they don't notice it, what do we do? We use a mirror so they can go, oh, well, that's interesting. My face is full of food. Great. So what do you need to do? Just like the, the fee study with Parkinson's, you have to use outside external endogenous, or sorry, exogenous information to upregulate the intrinsic part that needs help. Other ideas? <laughs> that's one. I mean, that's only one. There are so many other ways you can do it. Yeah. Well, that makes me think about if somebody is looking at, if somebody's on a puree diet and they're looking at the plate of puree and it's not appetizing um, typically, uh, that's already, you know, setting up a certain response. Not to say that that's going to cause, that's going to improve their swallowing function or disrupt their swallowing function or anything like that. But, um, yeah. you know, again, going back to the challenge, um, obviously, um, I'm not trying to say that we just leave people on puree forever. Obviously, we are actually introducing a challenge when a therapy session, we're like, okay, we're going to try um, like a, a cookie or something like that. Um, but when we think about solids, I feel like it's so easy to talk about liquids um, and how they're swallowed. We can talk about different volumes, but when we talk about solids, it gets so much more complex because we have all of these different categories of what, uh, how you can kind of introduce different sensory perceptions. So like the fracturability, so how easy it is to uh, break down the slipperiness, like all of these different things. And a lot of times we're only testing, you know, a cracker or a cookie in fluoro and it's so hard to then extrapolate that to uh, like noodles um, or even different kinds of noodles, not even noodles versus a hamburger, but um, like a spaghetti noodle versus, you know, a macaroni noodle or something like that. And um, also there's the sound. So while we're chewing, you know, something that's particularly crunchy can give our uh, system feedback that we need to keep uh, chewing it and process it in a certain way. So I think I um, in, addition to, in, in addition to sight, we also have sound. Smell is huge um, mm -hmm. too. Um, so, so the appetitive network is what you're talking about, which does a lot of things. One, it overlaps with a lot of networks in our cortex for swallowing. So if you want to prime those areas, it's possible. We already know that when food is appetizing, what do we do? We get a lot of saliva, which mm -hmm. helps us to actually break the food down. Our motivation is different. If you're forced, you know, I know people who cannot stand okra like me and what do they want to do they want to gag at the same time they're swallowing that's actually counterproductive to the actual behavior so if somebody doesn't even want to eat it they're probably going to behave more differently it's the way you slow down when you've had too much ice cream or something at the beginning you can you're like shoving it in your face and after a while when you're you're sick of it you're, you're, you've just slowed, slowed down. And I would argue that your system is starting to say, this is not something we want to take into our bodies anymore. So I, I think you're, that's a great point that um, you, your appetite needs to be ap uh, appeasing 
food. It needs to be palatable food. It needs to be food that you, they can see and smell and have high sensation and something they actually want to eat. Even if it has to be a texture that they don't love, maybe it can be a taste they love. Maybe they hate peas, but love pineapple. And there's some way you can get crushed fruit instead of crushed peas. We do it with kids all the time. So I don't understand why it's so terribly difficult. And Leash, we'll let you have the last one. Then we got to run. Well, okay. So I just have one question because I've been curious about this. Do we know anything about the type of experience or the type of foods that kids get when they're younger, how it influences their ability to manipulate boluses later in life. So if you have a kid that only gets puree for the first like 10 years of their life, I don't even know if this exists or Mm -hmm. I I don't know anything about this. I'm asking totally naively. Are they better? Are they less able to manipulate textures later in life? Are they set up? So there is some research that suggests that, kids who are super picky eaters who are allowed to continue to be super picky eaters and don't have a wider range of um, experiences tend to have difficulty with uh, that going forward. Now, does that mean that they are physically incapable of processing food in terms of the movements? I don't know that that study's ever been done, but we do know the likelihood that they're gonna have a gag or spit it out is gonna be higher And if you're thinking about gagging the whole time you're trying to eat, it can't possibly facilitate swallowing because it's literally the the (laughs) anti-swallow, right? That's what a gag is. Yeah, I'm glad that we brought up kids because I think um, we a lot of times there are um, assessments for uh, picky eaters and then the treatment is kind of to explore a range of color textures, tastes. And I'm like, well, we, we could technically translate that to adults, right? I mean, obviously not, maybe it's not, you're not going to say we're going to play with our food now, but let's explore. Let's, you know, talk about how we're perceiving what we're all these different, this different array of sensory experiences. And so I'm going to, I'm going to close, but what, what I think we've done here is we've said, the focus for sensation can never just be on stuff that happens in the pharynx and where the bolus goes on fluoro feeding needs to be incorporated into this. That is the ways you bring the food to your mouth, what you see, what you smell, all of those things heighten sensation and hopefully modulate the swallow differently. And that's where we have way more control than fluoro and fees. Um, and while we could use fees to test the integrity of the larynx, why not use the bolus itself, the the modulator, the, the stimulant to modulate the swallow? Because that is far more normalized. Uh, we have we have to go, but uh, I think we have a couple of conversations to have still based on this. So thank you so much for joining us, Rachel. And uh, hope you hope you felt like this is a conversation where you got to share your experiences. Your Absolutely. Expertise. Thank you for having me. I, I love talking sensation. Fabulous. All right, we'll do it again. Next time, Rachel will give you a sign that says, shut the fuck up, guys. I want to say something. Yeah. No. You are so polite. You're like, sorry. I'm like, nope. No, my problem is like at one point I even wrote down three thoughts because I just like have my brain goes in all these different directions because there's just such a complicated topic. So (laughs) I got to go, guys. I got another meeting. All All right. right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Take care.